Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of media, sports, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. We've got a good episode this week, Paul. Lots of interesting things to talk about. What's going on in the world right now? The World Cup's still going. A little bit of a bummer that the USA is out. It is a bummer. I watched the game. I feel like the Netherlands capitalized on every chance that they had, and the U.S. was just a hair off on all their chances. And that's sort of the difference between an elite squad that's probably a contender to win it all and, you know, a scrappy, hardworking squad that, you know, they're a good team, but they're just, they're not at that sort of contender level yet. I mean, but like, like, like the World Cup, we've seen some upsets so far. So, they played decent. They just couldn't finish. I mean, the goal right before the half was a killer. Yeah. We'll see what happens now that uh, Argentina plays the Netherlands. So we'll see who wins on that one. But just in general, like exciting World Cup. I've been very happy with this World Cup. It seems like a lot of people are watching. Uh, you know, everywhere you go in New York, places are packed with people watching it. Can't imagine when it's like overseas. My office had a watch party for the U.S. versus Iran, which I... We never really do stuff like that, so that was cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I'm excited. I'm, I'm actually going to be in Dubai for the finals. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to be in Qatar, but I'm like an hour away. People have asked me, like, why don't you just go? I think some people are actually staying there because the Ex- exactly. not enough hotels. Yeah. Some people are staying in Dubai and then traveling. I think it'll just be good energy to be in Dubai for the finals. I, I have some friends from high school who live there. So I'm like, hey, can we make sure that we are organized with where we go to watch the finals? It'll be fun to watch it like on the same time zone. Do you have a prediction for the final? Oh, no, man. I don't know. I think France is going to make it to the final. Okay. So that okay. that is my That's only the defending prediction. champ, by the way, right? Yeah, yeah. And like... Okay, going out on a limb. Uh, <laughs> Senegal. Senegal is going to make it to the final. <laughs> you know, now that we don't have... A, I don't have a rooting interest anymore... Uh, but I guess I want Messi to win. He's never won one. Same. Why same. not? Yeah, I, I too. I feel that way. He's such a good dude. It seems like real fan favorite going to Miami, apparently to join Beckham's Miami uh, MLS team. So it'd be cool. Like his last World Cup, let him win one. So and they've been playing. They've been playing well. They played decently against Australia. I thought they would have crushed them a bit more, but um, it's an exciting World Cup. I'm excited to to watch the quarterfinals, and um, it's good. It's going to be sad when it's gone, but it is what it is. As all things. uh, As all things. And speaking of which, let's kick off the show. Oh, actually, I have one more more surprise topic, which is best movie I've seen this year. Oh, okay. Marcel the Shell. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I have. I haven't seen it, but I hear it's great. It's so good. Yeah, Jessica recommended it, like, on Friday, and I was a little skeptical because... Stop motion animation, but we watched it twice over the week. It was so good. Really? You watched it twice? Yeah. 
I teared up. It's like a really good movie. The story of it is really interesting. It's taken a long time to get here. Well, she made the short like 10 years ago, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I'm going to have to check that out. Check it out. It's 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 amazing. Well, then I then I will recommend I saw something with my family over Thanksgiving and it kind of blew my mind away. Triangle of Sadness is an amazing movie. Okay. I will check it out. Woody Harrelson's in it. It is a wild, wild ride. It's super funny, really quirky, highly, highly recommended to folks. We got some, look, between Marcel the Shell, West One Wreck, we got Triangle Sadness, and then a, f a few weeks back, I recommended Tar. So we got some good movies to watch come the holidays. Definitely Marcel the Shell. I recommend it to everyone. Well, let's kick it off. One of the main updates right now that's happening in the world of media, just like everywhere else layoffs man lots of layoffs hiring freezes from some of the biggest media companies in the u.s everyone from cnn amc nbc disney it's a tough time out there it's affecting every business and sometimes it's not really a question of you know how good you are at your job it's just the industry shifting and resources need to be reallocated and we were in a huge growth cycle and things can't grow sort of like at an even pace forever. Sometimes things grow really quickly and people staff up, companies staff up, and then they have to transition. And it is super unfortunate for whoever is impacted by that. And a lot of journalists, a lot of talent, a lot of executives, and non-executives as well. It's, it's, it's a real shame. And we talked about this you know, with Meta, Snap, Amazon. So it's really tech, media. Google's not hiring people right now. Right. It's just everywhere. And you know, and probably... I read something about Paramount has said that they're going to do something similar. They haven't started yet, but I think, you know, one of the things I hear in the tech space is that people still haven't started cutting costs and they're going to need to, and it's, there's still potentially some to go. So, well, that's the question is like, is 2023 the bottom? Right. Or how low do things go? Cause like, We've sort of been in this, is it a recession? Is it not a recession? Is it only a function of raising interest rates or is there something deeper play is the maybe if the Ukraine conflict settles down, things will go back to normal. Or is there just so much excess capacity and a fundamental change in the way people view and consume content? And and so we talked about this in May when the Discovery Warner Brother deal closed, that often after large mergers like this, there are layoffs. And Dave Zaslov said he was looking to save three billion in costs as a result of the merger. And so even in a strong economy, there might have been layoffs at CNN. Certainly in a weak economy, it's even worse. So there's a story out there, AMC Networks, which is a great company. They make great content, you know, Walking Dead, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. And they have streaming products like Shudder and they're sort of on the cutting edge of that. But even they're not immune to this. And They've announced that they're doing some layoffs and their CEO is stepping down and she was only on the job for three months, Christina Spade, and she's getting a $10 million severance package. Now, that's sort of the market for CEOs. I mean, you can look at it in hindsight and say, well, that seems like a lot of money for a couple months of work. But in reality, she probably negotiated her deal before she took the job and wanted to be protected in the worst case scenario. So she was like, hey, you know, I'm a CEO. I've run other media companies. If things don't go well, 
I need to make sure that I'm made whole. Right. But, you know, certainly it's fodder for a lot of criticism out there and just CEO pay in general. I think CEOs of S&P 500 companies have made almost an average of 20 million a year. And that's, I think, something like 330 times what the average worker makes. And then, you know, with inflation, average worker salaries have actually gone down in the past year. So it's just, it is a disconnect. I think it depends. I mean, I think... I'm in one of those things. If you're lowering everyone's salaries, then that it should include everyone. At the end of the day, too, though, like the job of a CEO for a public company is is tough. Like if you're generating tens of millions or hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in revenue, and then you're also bringing down costs, you know, relative to what you're doing and the value that you're creating for a company, how should you get paid? So I, I I think it's all relative to like, you know, where they are in the company. I think my only thing is is that if you are cutting costs and, you know, letting people go, then everyone should experience some level of like cost cut, including the CEO. Right. But the thing is, the CEO has the ability to sort of negotiate the terms of, on, of their employment before they take the job. Or they can dictate things that like the they have leverage that the average worker doesn't have. So yeah, that's how this disparity kind of arises. But like you said, if you run a multi-billion dollar company successfully, then you're creating value for shareholders. You're keeping people employed. Yeah. It's growing. You should get a chunk of that. What that amount is, I think, is up for debate. But when things are going south, it, it's definitely fodder for criticism from all sides. Like if you want a Bob Iger running your company in wartime, you got to pay the guy. He could go elsewhere. And like wartime CEOs, when it matters most. Like, this is how you protect the value of the company, which essentially is to shareholders. It's touchy because it's, these are people's jobs, et cetera. And it's, it's always just tough to see layoffs in general. Well, hopefully it's temporary and hopefully everyone that's impacted will land on their feet. Well, let's take a break and then we'll come back with some Balenciaga drama. Okay, Paul, so Balenciaga under fire right now. They had this 2022 gift collection campaign where one of the ads featured kids with like teddy bears and bondage gear, and it was a little eerie, like the setting and stuff. And then they had another campaign that featured a reference, uh, a Supreme Court case, United States versus Williams, which was around child pornography. And basically they're getting a ton of backlash there's now a lawsuit involved with Balenciaga suing the 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 group they that, that did the camp. Oh, they did drop it. They dropped it. Uh, yeah, yesterday. Uh, so, no, it's just, you're 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 spot on. They they had um, this holiday campaign with the kids holding purses, but the purses are teddy bears in bondage, and then there was other bondage gear all around the setting. And then they had their office campaign, which was actually from earlier in the year. I think it was shot in June or July. And that's just someone's desk. But on the desk, there's like a $3,000 purse. And there's a piece of paper <laughs> from a Supreme Court case that said the Protect Act, upheld the Protect Act as being constitutional and not a violation of the First Amendment protection on free speech. And the Protect Act basically outlawed people who pander child pornography or the pandering of child pornography or materials that could be believed to be child pornography. So How bizarre. And Balenciaga is known for pushing the envelope and, you know, sort of being 
controversial. They want to be discussed, right? Like Kim Kardashian covering her face in all black. $1,800 shoes that are like tattered and destroyed. They sold for 1800 bucks. Like Right. They had like a pair of loose fitting sweatpants that were like $950. And they are known for pushing the envelope and for being controversial in a way that makes them stand out and helps move product and helps be thought provoking. This one is just a case of them going, I think, way over the line. They've admitted that now. Sexualizing children. I mean, that's basically what this is. Yeah. They're denying it or they're denying that they had an intent to do it. And they're saying that they're going to review their processes moving forward. And you're right. They actually did sue their production company. $25 million, right? It was like a $25 million lawsuit. Yeah, they sued their production company, North Six, and their set designer, Nicholas Desjardins, for $25 million. That was like a week ago when the f- story first broke. And the story broke because this TikToker, uh, Brittany Venti, basically made a TikTok, showed those two campaigns, and was like, this is effed up. Why are brands sexualizing children? You know, yeah. we have all this trafficking. We have child pornography. You have Jeffrey Epstein. You have all these different things happening in this society. And why is this luxury fashion brand, which isn't even selling products to kids, why are they using kids in their campaign? And then what's with the bondage? Like, this whole thing is wrong. That starts getting traction on social media. People are like, yeah, Britney's right. Why was this okay? Then they come out and they sue the production company <laughs> and the, the set designer because they're like, oh, we didn't know. This was textbook scapegoating. Yeah, they said, claim that the Supreme Court papers were placed in the campaign photographs without their knowledge and has led to false associations between Balenciaga and child pornography. This is from the New York Times. I'm sorry, someone approves the campaign and you pay these people. And so you obviously looked at the campaign. You, I, I would assume that Balenciaga doesn't be like, okay, cool, just launch the campaign. We're not going to have anyone review what you, the work that you did. We're just going to pay you. Like, that doesn't make sense. Do you think they did that because, hey, we're going to do this lawsuit, but we're not actually going to sue you. We're just going to say we're going to sue you so that everyone knows that, you know, we take this seriously. No, I mean, I think they probably genuinely were looking for a scapegoat like yeah. a week ago when they filed the lawsuit just to sort of quell the negative PR. Right. And then they probably realized after it all rang hollow and the set designer was like, there were executives present at every step of the way. Yeah, totally. They approved this. And so Jessica, my wife, is a set designer and she works for brands too and makes ads. And it would be Something like a Supreme Court case being on the desk, that's a level of detail that it's just like weird how that got there. Because yeah. I could see how someone who's like French or Spanish fashion executive isn't going to know what that Supreme Court the case is. Because it's, like right. it's like a random thing. But why would that? It's also be intentional. There. Why would that be there? Yeah. So I could see how you wouldn't notice that. But the yeah, kids, fair, fair. you definitely would notice that. <laughs> and when Jessica's working on these campaigns, the brand has 100% say over everything. Like, they set the tone. Right. They give you the inspiration. They're like, this is our vision. Now it's your job to go out and execute it. So if their vision did not involve teddy bears and bondage and kids, then the photographer would not have produced a campaign that had those things in it. You know, yes, they hire these people to effectuate their creative direction and they approve everything. So it is really hard to sort of sue them after the fact. Maybe the Supreme Court case, you know, that's weird. I don't know how that would get in there, but I could see how that would get missed. 
Yeah, and then on top of that, you have like not only TikTok stars, etc., uh, going on social media, you have Kim Kardashian that writes, I have been quiet for the past few days, not because I haven't been disgusted and outraged by the recent Balenciaga campaigns, but because I wanted an opportunity to speak to their team and understand for myself how this could have happened. And then she goes on talking about she's a mother of four. She's like deeply disturbed. And then she says, I appreciate the removal of the campaign and the apology. And she says, as for my future with Balenciaga, I'm currently reevaluating my relationship with the brand, basing off their willingness to accept accountability for something that should never have happened. Interesting. I looked at it when you know we were doing research for this. I looked at it I'm like, yeah, this is like eerie and creepy. Like, I don't like it. But um, I don't know if I would have put like all that together. I would have looked at him like, oh, that's kind of weird and dumb. Clearly approved, like not my cup of tea. But to your point, it starts out with one person saying something and then everyone being like, oh, yeah, that is weird. That is weird. And <laughs> it's a serious problem. I mean, yeah. Ashton Kutcher has spent like a, a lot of the past year or several years, you know, fighting trafficking and sexualization of children. And it's a huge problem. And, you know, it's very hard to, as a brand, say, oh, we're against the sexualization of children when you're releasing content like that. Yeah. And so but they did get out. They, they withdrew the lawsuit. They did say that they're going to completely revamp their review and vetting process and they want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Yeah. But all that is sort of only after the fact, after they've been swept up in these like QAnon conspiracy theories and, and everything else. So very strange. And hopefully it never happens again. Yeah. I mean, I don't own any Balenciaga. So I'm like, yeah, okay. Now it's, it's funny how these brands like, you know, you see someone wearing like a Balenciaga hat or they buy a T-shirt that's probably $400 that says Balenciaga or they're wearing those ridiculous sneakers that they make and then suddenly the it's like... Shoes look like socks? Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, oh, they're not cool. You know, don't wear Balenciaga now. What's the next one? I mean, it, it, it takes one thing like this to like completely bring down a brand. We'll see, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to make it, you know, chill out for a little bit, make a comeback. Yeah, I mean, they, they may. Their, their creative director, Demna, he, he sort of owned it. He was like, listen, I, I, I missed the mark here. I want to push the envelope, but I don't want to sexualize children. And obviously, I do think they probably have an opportunity to rectify this and not if they don't do it again and they take actual steps to fix what happened. Or, but like, the fact that this sailed through their process, um, their approval process, and no one at the company thought this might be a bad idea is, is pretty concerning. I would hate to be them right now, or I would hate to be the creative director of that company right now. That would be that would be a tough spot to be in. So it's just weird. The whole thing's weird. Yeah. Well, let's take a break, and then we'll get back, and we'll talk about Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster. So, Mesh, have you ever uh, tried to go to a concert or a festival? Yeah. Do you ever, like, pay an insane amount of uh, service fees and charges to... Yeah, it's insane. But you have to do it, right? Yeah, and I don't want to. It's weird. It's unfair. I think all of us, as sort of like um, fans of live music and sports, just kind of accept that there's this tax, if we want to see things live, that we just have to pay these exorbitant service fees. fees and that's all i've ever known is right yeah like yeah. these 40 50 percent service fees and it's not like something you feel like you can change and so you just deal with it and that is 
Ticketmaster, essentially. So yep. they control the market. They have something like 70 to 80% of the market of ticket sales to concerts, including... 80%, I believe, is the number. Yeah, it's a nuanced point because it depends on how you define the market. And that's Fair. a very sort of gray thing within antitrust law. But like there's studies and economists have said it's between 70 and 80% of the market. They control like venues. They represent artists, like 500 artists of the top artists. They sell tickets to 30,000 shows a year, half a billion tickets a year. So they have a ton of power. They have some competitors, but none of them are like rivals. Right. And so they're able to kind of dictate these terms, which people just sort of deal with. But the straw that may have broke the camel's back was the Taylor Swift Eras concert. Yeah, man, you don't mess with Swifties. You know, I know a few folks who've gotten tickets uh, and everyone's like blown away. And so just for people who don't know what happened, basically, you know, Ticketmaster had a presale for this, the biggest tour that Taylor Swift is going to be doing, 52 dates across 20 cities. Ticketmaster sold more than 2 million tickets during the presale, more than any artist in a single day, and they didn't have enough inventory for a public sale, and then they canceled the public sale. And it's something like where prices were set from $49 to $500, but then the cheapest ticket was anywhere from like $300 to $700, and then tickets went as high as $30,000. All these technical glitches, it was crashing, and Taylor Swift fans were really, really, really upset about this. And now it's caused... An investigation. Not only Taylor Swift fan, Taylor Swift was pissed yeah. that her fans were suffering. And I just want to be clear, it didn't cause this investigation. So Congress was already mm. in the process. The wheels were turning, but Congress has a lot of other priorities. And so I think this what, what this did is it jump-started the congressional investigation. And Amy Klobuchar is the chair of the antitrust committee. So she's one of the people spearheading this, like, hey, let's really look into, is Live Nation and Ticketmaster a monopoly? Are they, because when they merged in 2010, the DOJ filed a lawsuit, tried to stop the merger. Right. And they said, no, 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 no. We'll actually be better for consumers because if we're combined, we'll be more efficient and we'll innovate more and it'll, and consumers will be better off. But in the past 10 years, that hasn't really happened. Service fees have gone up. They haven't really innovated with this, Taylor Swift thing and the fact that their servers were down, they couldn't handle demand. People were waiting eight hours to get tickets. <laughs> Only one in 20 people had the chance to even get tickets. And the fact that they did in advance, they gave out codes to people like verified fans in advance. So they should have had a sense of what the demand was, yeah. you know, like three, four or five days leading up to it because people had signed up to get the presale code. So the question is like, do they feel like they need to compete with others and deliver better service on better price terms? Or do they have so much power, which they could have obtained sort of illegally uh, under the antitrust laws, that they don't have to compete and they don't have to provide good service because people don't have a choice. They're just like, if they want to see a concert, they have to deal with Ticketmaster. And that's also like on the artist side too, right? Artists have to sell through the Ticketmaster platform based on the venue that they're going. Like, it's not that we have to buy it. They're also saying for like these artists who are on tours, like you have to use Ticketmaster, essentially. They do a lot of things. And listen, I'm not an antitrust lawyer. I did take antitrust in law school. And the things that Ticketmaster's reported they do, to me, would sort of check all the boxes if you were an antitrust law professor writing an exam. Like, yeah. 
is this, there's a company that does this, controls this much of the market, has contracts with venues, controls the artists, charges these fees, provides incentives to use their services over others. If you put that all in like a law school exam, yeah, that would be antitrust violation 101. Right. But for some reason, <laughs> they've never really lost an antitrust case. They are being sued now as a result of this Taylor Swift thing. By fans too, right? Like fans are suing. Them. By fans, yeah. Well, in antitrust law, there's a couple different antitrust laws. There's the Sherman Antitrust Act, there's the Clayton Act, and then there's the FTC Act. And the Sherman Antitrust Act basically prevents horizontal and vertical restraints of trade, like price fixing and cartels. And it also declares that illegal monopolies that are sort of like illegally obtained are a violation of law. And then under the Clayton Act, that's really more against mergers and acquisitions where you're buying up your competitors to basically not have to compete with them. And private citizens can sue under some of the antitrust statutes, but generally speaking, it's the government that brings antitrust cases. Although if you're a consumer and you're harmed by a monopolist or a cartel, you can sue and try to get damages. But the thing is, a, you know, a person going up against a huge company, like a $17, $18 billion company like Live Nation, do they have the legal resources to really win right. uh, you know, a lawsuit like that? Because those things can drag on for years. It's a tough thing to enforce unless you're the government. And what a lot of legal... Um, scholars and economists are saying is like the government's been pretty lax as far as evaluating the conditions under which Live Nation was allowed to merge with Ticketmaster. I would love to see something happen here. Part of the reason I don't even go to shows anymore is because I'm like, man, these tickets are just insanely priced. Uh, and what ends up happening is I go on StubHub later and I still pay for it. But like I, I've always found when I'm trying to use Ticketmaster for any presale, like it's always just like such a pain. I don't want to be sitting there you know, reloading, fighting for tickets, getting access. Like, I just wish it was a, a better process and a more fair process. So I think it's really cool that, you know, the, the narrative is more like, yes, this was the, the wheels are turning, but it, it takes like a Taylor Swift concert to really like break the camel's back or the, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And I would love to see something positive come out for it for fans and arts. I think that'd be great. Citibank, an analyst said that, even with notwithstanding this congressional investigation, he thinks there's only a 20% chance that the company is broken up. Oof, that's low. No, yeah. I mean, I think they probably survive it. I don't know, but it just seems like this is how it is. And antitrust is a very nuanced and tricky area of the law. Yeah. And they're going to say that they don't have market power. They have competitors like Eventbrite, Tickets.com, SeatGeek, VividSeat, StubHub. Right. And what you just said, right? Like, you can go to another reseller to buy tickets and that, you know, they use their resources to improve the customer service and to bring concerts that wouldn't otherwise exist. And during the pandemic, when they couldn't have live events, like that was, a, am sure, a tough time for them. So that maybe justifies some of the fees, the service fees. It's one of those things that like the whole foundation of capitalism and, and our economy is that competition is good for consumers. And so if you want to see Taylor Swift and the Ticketmaster site is slow or there's like a an insane service fee, then you should be able to go to some other site and buy tickets to that concert. And that's how it should work. And that's why, you know, we talk about streaming hasn't been that profitable. That's because there's so many different streaming companies. They're all right. competing away right. their profits. They're trying to spend a ton on content 
and charge as little as possible so that they have more subscribers because Disney and Netflix and Paramount and Amazon Prime Video and Peacock, they're all competing because you can't have every single platform. But who is Ticketmaster competing with? It's one of those things where, for me, it's it's the venue piece to it. That's the the big part. Like, yes, there might be other platforms for resellers, et cetera, but nobody owns the venues and then is also selling the tickets. What I learned in law school, this stuff would probably be an antitrust violation. But for whatever reason, there's a difference between what you learn in sort of like the ivory tower of law school and what happens in the real world. And I think Ticketmaster, they, they're probably going to have the best lawyers money can buy make a case as to why what they're doing is, is okay. And they'll probably at least according to the market, the market's not expecting that they'll actually face any consequences. Well, we'll find out soon enough, right? These hearings, I'm sure, will happen in the next, like, few months. I don't know. Uh, I have no or... idea. These things <laughs> yeah. can drag on forever. Um, well, that has been, right? Didn't you, you, We mentioned earlier, you would mentioned to me, and I forgot about this, that Pearl Jam sued Ticketmaster back in the 90s. 1994, but they lost. Yeah. I mean, really, the opportunity... To stop this was 2010 when Live Nation right, bought right. Ticketmaster, and they—I don't know how—but the DOJ like wasn't able to right. prevail on that. And Ticketmaster, they said, "Oh, well, we will. This will actually be better for consumers." And I think what Klobuchar saying is like, "Oh, let's look back over the past 10 years since that merger. Have things really been better?" And I think it's an honest question. They probably haven't been, honestly, as right. a, as a fan. I don't know. I don't expect anything to change, but it's 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 a bummer. But I just don't think anything is going to change. But maybe they pissed off the wrong person, right? In the Swifties. Maybe that is. Now, it would be sick. Look, it would be sick that it's Taylor Swift fans and Taylor Swift are the reason that this might change. But we'll keep you posted. We'll see what happens. Hopefully, that 20% chance. I'm gunning for that 20% chance that something could change. We'll see how it plays out. That's for sure. All right, folks, that's our show for this week. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us on Instagram, Better Call Paul, the podcast, and follow me on Twitter at Meshlakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera, Marco Siler Gonzalez, and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>